my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ as our brother Philip reminded us in our resume on the last class we considered Christ's cleansing of the temple when he went up to Jerusalem for the first Passover feast during the three and a half years of his ministry in verse 23 we read of certain things that happened in Jerusalem while he was there for that Passover we read now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day many believed in his name when they saw his miracles which he did and we read here in verse 23 that the Lord Jesus Christ remained in Jerusalem for the period of the Passover feast when it speaks of the Passover day of course you'll notice that the word day is in italics it's not referring just to one day but to the duration of the Passover feast and we see that the Lord Jesus Christ spent that Passover feast in Jerusalem now the implication of that verse is that the events of verses 14 to 16 that is the cleansing of the temple probably took place just prior to the Passover in fact that would be the time probably when the trade of the merchants in the temple was at their greatest when people were there buying their their Passover lambs and so forth but it's interesting just to contemplate that there just prior to the Passover feast the Lord Jesus Christ was in the temple casting out the traders and those who were making it into a house of merchandise because that was the very time when the people of Israel were supposed to be searching their houses and getting rid of the leaven purging out the leaven so that no leaven would be found in their houses during the time of the Passover feast and there just prior to the Passover we find the Lord Jesus Christ in his father's house driving out from that house those who were turning it into a house of merchandise purging his father's house of that leaven and it reminds us brethren and sisters when we consider that we are the temple of the living God and it reminds us of the exhortation of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he exhorts us to purge out the leaven of malice and wickedness so that we might in sincerity and truth keep the Passover feast and so the Lord Jesus Christ taught that lesson to the uh, Jews of Jerusalem at that time and having cleansed the temple in that way and shown the nation of Israel that they were a leprous house and that he endeavoured to, to, uh, to, to commence a reform that would rectify that condition at that time having done those things we find that now the Passover feast is actually taking place and there during the course of that feast we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ performed miracles or signs we're not told what miracles he performed we're not told how many he performed in fact there is no other record at all of any of these miracles because the other gospel writers make no mention of these early events in the ministry of the Lord so we don't know what miracles were performed but we are told that many believed because of what they 
saw. So they saw miracles performed and many were told believed. But you know, when we go on into verse 24 we read, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And in the Greek there seems to be a, a play on words in those two verses because the word believed in verse 23 and the word commit in verse 24 are the, are the same word. They have the same meaning. So you see there's a play upon words. We read that many trusted, many believed or trusted in Jesus but Jesus did not trust himself to them. It seems rather strange that the Lord would treat people in this way. People who were professing to believe in the things that uh, he was doing and teaching. But you see, the Lord knew that faith which is based upon sensation (coughs) is very likely to wither away when the sensation is no longer there. You see, these who believed in Jerusalem at that time were of a different class to Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, who had believed not because they saw any miracle performed, but they believed because what they heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they could see in him the one for whom they were waiting in fulfilment of the promises of the Old Testament. But you see, it would seem from verses 24 and 25 here that many in Jerusalem, when they saw the miracles, because of the sensation of miracles being performed before their eyes, they were prepared to believe in him and they were prepared to rally around him at that particular time. But the Lord Jesus Christ knew and understood that although they were prepared to rally around him while they saw miracles being performed, they would not be prepared to live a sacrificial life to the glory of Almighty God. It's very interesting in these early chapters of the Gospel of John to notice the way in which the principle of God manifestation is running right through these chapters. You see, we look at chapter 1 and there as we saw we have the divine genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ tracing the origin of his character and work back to Yahweh himself. We read in that, in that chapter of the word being made flesh and manifesting the glory of the Father uh, 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 among us. You see, we come on into chapter 2 and first of all in chapter 2 we're introduced to a wedding. A wedding which is the uniting of two people as one. And it reminds us of the purpose of Almighty God through his Son that that the Ecclesia and and the Lord Jesus Christ should be united together as one and that ultimately they and Yahweh might be united together as one. The principle of oneness. That's the principle of God manifestation. And there it is exhibited in that wedding to which we were introduced at the beginning of chapter 2. But then chapter 2 goes on and we read of the temple. We're introduced to Yahweh's house. That, that thing in which Yahweh will, will uh, in, dwell in. A temple was a building in which Yahweh dwelt. 
And we're reminded that we are the temple of the living God. We must be vessels in which Yahweh can dwell. In this, uh, this dispensation through the power of his word. In the age to come through physical manifestation. And now we're introduced in, the, in this section from verses 23 of chapter 2 through into chapter 3. We're introduced to the principle of rebirth. And we're taken right back to the very start of God's manifestation. Right back to the very start. The principle of a new begettle and a new birth and the production of a new man. And we find that underlying theme is running right through these chapters of the Gospel of John. But you see, here in these, these, two, these uh, last verses of chapter 2, where we read of people believing, but the Lord not committing himself unto them, we can see that the Lord Jesus could see that that was a belief that wasn't really a rebirth. Now in verse 25 we read, He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And we're introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ as a man who had very deep understanding of human nature. He was a man who knows how people work. He knew in that set of circumstances that although there were those believing because of what they could see rather than what they could hear, he knew that, that although they were prepared to rally around him, while they saw sensational works being performed, he knew it was a different matter when it came to living a sacrificial life to give glory to Almighty God. And he recognised that what, what he was looking for in people was that deep inward love, that love for Yahweh and his word that could become a transforming power in their lives. Not just a superficial thing, which rallies when mighty works are being done. You see, and, and, and when we read there in verse 24 that there were those people who believed but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. It, it, it calls upon us, brethren and sisters, to look upon ourselves. What is it that sustains us in the truth today? Is it because we can see signs in the world around? Is it because we enjoy the comfort of ecclesial life? Is it outward superficial things such as that? Or is it a deep love for Yahweh that will endure and will result in a life of sacrifice for his glory? You see, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is really looking at, looking for in us. If the Lord was here now, would he commit himself unto us? Or would he treat us in the way that he treated us? But even though there were many in that set of circumstances, we find there were exceptions, even in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Rotherham renders verse 1 of chapter 3 in this way. There was, however, a man from among the Pharisees, Nicodemus his name, 
a ruler of the Jews. And notice how Rotherham draws out the connection between chapter 3 and the last verses of chapter 2. He's just told us that, that there were those in Jerusalem that believed but Jesus did not commit himself under them because he knew what was in man. And then he says, there was, however, a man from among the Pharisees, Nicodemus. And so a, a connection is drawn between those last three verses of chapter 2 and the subject matter of chapter 3. And I believe we have there a contrast, or the contrast is drawn between belief by sight, belief based upon outward things, and begettle from above. And they can be two entirely different things. Belief because of what is seen, sensational works that were seen, and begettle from above can be two entirely different things. And I believe that's the contrast here that he's drawn between that last part of chapter 2 and the early verses of chapter 3. And so in chapter 3 here, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is only mentioned by John. He receives no mention in any other gospel. And we read of this particular man nowhere else in the scriptures. He's only referred to by John. His name is mentioned five times in the Gospel of John in three references to him. The name Nicodemus means victor over the people. And I believe he's set forth here as an example, as a representative of the type of people who will gain the victory by the grace of God through a resurrection to newness of life. The number five, five times his name is mentioned, speaks of grace. He was a man who found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Uh, And the number three, the three uh, references to his life, speaks of resurrection. He was a man, I believe, who ultimately was raised up to walk in newness of life and doubtless will be raised up again in the future to be clothed with divine glory. We read here of Nicodemus that he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews, or that is a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish tribunal in Jerusalem. It was made up of of 71 members who were taken from priests, elders, scribes, lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees and so forth. And 71 men were selected from from those uh, um, parties in Israel and were were brought together to form the highest Jewish tribunal or, or, or court as we might say. And Nicodemus was one of that 71. The implication perhaps from verse 4 is that Nicodemus was an elderly man. Verse 4 says, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? And that word old, the word uh, geron, means an old man. Now Nicodemus may have just been using it in a general sense. 
But perhaps he asked that question because he himself was an old man. Probably, considering the position that he held in Israel, he would have been uh, getting on in years. He would have been an older man rather than a young man. In verse 10 we read uh, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? When we look at the diaglot, we see that the literal Greek reads there, Art thou the teacher of the Israel, and knowest not these things? Rotherham and Weymouth, uh, probably others as well, also render it in, in, in a similar way. Art thou the teacher in Israel? And it suggests that Nicodemus was not just any ordinary teacher. He was a teacher of some standing in Jerusalem. He was a teacher of high office among the Pharisees. And so we find that he was a very influential man in Jerusalem. A man of considerable prominence and influence. From the fact that, uh, as we shall see in a few moments, at the death of the Lord, Nicodemus provides spices for the embalming of his body. And it suggests that Nicodemus was also a man of wealth, as his position would probably uh, uh, bring him uh, into. And it's interesting to look at the life of Nicodemus as it is recorded here in the Gospel of John. Because I believe we see in Nicodemus the practical outworking of the very principles that the Lord Jesus Christ tried to teach him upon this occasion. You see, we get our first glimpse of Nicodemus here in this chapter, which we will look at in more detail in a few moments. But we see him here coming to the Lord Jesus by night. In John 7, chapter 7 and verse 15, we get our second little glimpse of Nicodemus. And here was, the, uh, here was a case out, uh, in verse 45 where the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, they sent these officers out to take the Lord Jesus Christ. The officers come back without him. And the Pharisees uh, have their little say about it from verses 46 to 49. But in verse 50 we find Nicodemus stands up and speaks against them. Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, that is one of the Pharisees, doth our Lord judge any man before he hear him and know what he doeth? And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went to his own house. So you see, here now, although Nicodemus had gone by night to conceal that which he was doing, now Nicodemus is prepared to stand up in the face of the opposition of the Pharisees and try and speak in defence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get our last little glimpse of Nicodemus in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 39. And here, of course, was after the Lord, this was after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, being a member of the Sanhedrin, would have been involved in the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ and doubtless during that trial 
as we read how the Jews had difficulty to finding the, the witnesses agreeing one to another. Doubtless it was because there were those there in that council who were trying to undermine the, uh, the, the, the false witness of, of those witnesses. And Nicodemus was doubtless there on that occasion. Just three years after his first interview with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would have been there in that council labouring to defend the Lord Jesus Christ because without any effect because he was hopelessly outnumbered. But we read of him here in verses 38 and 39. But after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of Jews is to bury. And so here we read of Nicodemus being involved and being identified with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I believe here Nicodemus showed great courage because he put himself in opposition to the Pharisees, in opposition to the Sanhedrin, and, and he would have doubtless been excommunicated by both because of what he did on this occasion in identifying himself with that man whom they had condemned to death. You know, it's interesting here. We wonder what was on the mind of Nicodemus as through that trial as he sat upon the Sanhedrin and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ rejected. He saw him taken forth out of that city and nailed to a stake. You know, back in John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ in, um, in, in uh, verse 14 had said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Three years later, Nicodemus witnessed that man rejected by the Jewish nation and he saw him lifted up and crucified how those words must have hit home to his mind at that time. Is it any wonder that we see Nicodemus at that time a completely transformed man, no longer going by night, but openly now identifying himself with his crucified Saviour? And you see, the very principle that we see there reminds us of that principle that we, we, we were reminded of in our exhortation on Sunday morning in regard to Cornelius. And our brother Brian showed us how the Lord sowed seeds in Cornelius many years before they bore, bore fruit, recorded in Acts chapter 10. And here we see the same thing happening again. You see, in Nicodemus' mind on that first meeting, the Lord Jesus was sowing seeds which didn't bear fruit immediately. It was three years before that fruit, that, 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 that seed produced its complete fruit and saw Nicodemus fully and openly identifying himself 
with a crucified Saviour? You know, we know we, we will have noted, no doubt, in both of those places that we looked, John 7 and here in John 19, the statement was added concerning Nicodemus, uh, uh, which at the first came to Jesus by night, in verse 39. It's added there. I believe it's added there for two reasons. Because initially Nicodemus was afraid of the people. But here he was a victor over the people, just as his name means. He gained that victory over fear of the people and he openly identified himself with his crucified Saviour. But secondly, I believe, it's put in there to take our mind back to John chapter 3 because there in John 19 we read of the fruits that the seeds of John chapter 3 bore in that man. And so then we go back to John chapter 3. We've seen something, we hope, of Nicodemus. In verse 2 we read, The same came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night. It would probably be very difficult for any of us to fully imagine the tremendous social pressures and difficulties that that, that, that came to bear upon that man because of his position. Now in John chapter 12, and verse 42, we read this. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now that was the way the Pharisees acted. People were afraid to confess belief in the Lord Jesus Christ because they'd be excommunicated out of the synagogue. Nicodemus was not only a member of that ruling party, he himself was a Pharisee. You see, and the Pharisees were foremost in the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of the tremendous difficulties and pressures that came to bear upon that man. You know, when we consider those things, it's amazing that Nicodemus came to Jesus at all. Is it any wonder that he came by night? I think when we understand the pressures that were upon him, we can understand why he went at night, why he didn't want anybody to know that he'd gone to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find that, the Lord Je- that, that, that Nicodemus overcame the problem by coming to Jesus by night. But you know, that would have taken a lot of forethought and preparation. You couldn't just spontaneously go out into the city of Jerusalem and find the Lord Jesus Christ at night. He would have to find out where he would be. He had to know where he could go and be sure of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, when we read there that the same came to Jesus by night, it must have been a carefully planned and prepared visit on the part of Nicodemus that he would know exactly where to go to find the Lord Jesus Christ and there in, in the secret of the night to have 
a discourse with him. And so Nicodemus, having found out where he can locate Jesus by night, travels through the darkness to the house or whatever it was where the Lord Jesus Christ was staying through the course of that Passover. And having found the Lord Jesus Christ and entered into the room with him, we see he addresses him in this way. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. You know, this was a great confession really to come from a person in his position. See, Nicodemus was a highly educated man. He was an educated Jew in the city of Jerusalem. (coughs) And for him to address an uneducated Galilean as rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, was really a very great confession to come from a man in his position. But although it was a very great confession, there were certain things that are lacking in it. First of all, we notice that Nicodemus was a very rational, logical, thinking man. You see, he'd seen the miracles. And he'd come to the conclusion that no man can do miracles like that except God be with him. He was a logical, rational, thinking man. And despite the opposition of his fellows, he was a man who could see that in this man who could heal the sick and so on and so forth, there was the evidence of a teacher come from God. Although he came to him with a very great confession to come from a man in his position, there were still certain things lacking in what he said. He said, we know you're a teacher come from God. He wasn't like Nathaniel, who said, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. He wasn't like Philip. He said, we found him of whom Moses and the prophets did speak. Nor was he like Andrew, who raced off to Peter and said, we have found the Messiah. Nicodemus didn't have that sort of conviction or enthusiasm at that particular time. Now though he'd gone to great pains to seek out this man whom he could see was a teacher come from God, he lacked the conviction to say, we know that you are the Messiah, because you couldn't do these miracles if it it was otherwise. You see, perhaps we need to pause here and just remind ourselves of what really was the the Jewish uh, frame of mind and understanding concerning the Messiah and concerning their own position in the purpose of God. You see, the Jews thought that because he was born of Abraham, then he held a very special relationship with God, which of course the Jew does hold a special relationship with God in that they're God's chosen nation. But but as, as individuals fitted for salvation, it counts for nothing. But you see, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, 
we find that, 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 that John the Baptist shows us really what the Jews thought. You see, when he's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees on this occasion, and he exhorts them to bring forth fruit to meet for repentance, he says in verse 9 of Matthew 3, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But you see, John the Baptist here put his finger right on the very uh, root of confidence that those people had. We are the children of Abraham. We have Abraham to our father. You see, in John chapter 8, we find that the, the, uh, the Jews made this boast also to the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 8 and verse 39. They, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said unto them, If you are Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And we see from these places how the Jews put tremendous confidence in the fact that they were born into the chosen nation. They put confidence in their birth, natural birth, into the uh, family of Abraham and they thought that because they were the children of Abraham then they were assured of their part in the kingdom of God and so that was their mind in relation to that aspect of it secondly concerning the Messiah we know that the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah at that particular time but they were expecting a Messiah who would come after the fashion of David of old be a great warrior and deliver them from the Romans to elevate Israel and establish the kingdom of God on earth then so that they could all be part and parcel of it. And those were the prominent Jewish ideas at that particular time. And these would have been the ideas, I believe, that were uppermost in Nicodemus' mind as he came to the Lord Jesus Christ at that time and said, We know you're a teacher come from God. He didn't accept at that time that he was the Messiah because he expected the Messiah to come and manifest himself as a military leader. And so he could see nothing more than a prophet in the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, he did come to him and he did question him on these matters. But it's interesting as we see the way the Lord Jesus Christ answers him. First of all, he points out to Nicodemus that to be born a Jew according to the flesh counted for nothing. And secondly, that the Messiah must come and die as a sacrifice. Those were the two points that the Lord Jesus Christ emphasised upon the mind of Nicodemus. And both of those points must have really been quite devastating for Nicodemus, whose whole concept of, of the kingdom of God and the chosen people was really based upon a different foundation altogether than that which the Lord Jesus Christ was about to expound under him. And so with, with these ideas in his mind Nicodemus comes to this man who he, who he can see is a teacher come from God and so he addresses him in verse 2 
Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And in answer to that introduction, we read in verse 3 that Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It seems, on the face of it, a rather strange answer to give to the address that Nicodemus had given. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ understood only too well what the real problems were with Nicodemus. And he cuts right to the very root of the problem straight away. And he answers and he, and he sows seeds in that man's mind that were ultimately going to bring about his salvation. And so the Lord says, Verily, verily. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. Render it how we like. The very phrase was, is a statement designed to emphasise the importance of what he's going to say. And so the Lord Jesus Christ emphasises to Nicodemus that what he's saying is true and of vital importance to salvation. You see, he said, accept. Accept. There's only one way to the kingdom of God. Only one way at all. If a person doesn't comply with that way, they will never see the kingdom of God. And so he emphasises that there's only one way (coughs) in which a person can (coughs) gain the kingdom. Notice the way he says, except a man. And the word means anyone. Anyone at all. Jew, Gentile, it makes no difference. It's a statement that levels everybody at one level. He doesn't say, well, you know, for a Jew can be in the kingdom of God upon this basis, but a Gentile has to be on it on that basis. He levels a lot, except any man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again. First of all, let's look at the word again. We notice that the margin gives an alternate rendering from above. Now it's the Greek word anothen. The word anothen is used in the New Testament in two ways. It can mean from the beginning or it can mean from above. But everywhere it's used in the Gospel of John, I believe it means from above. You see, we find it used in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. See, it can only mean one thing there. It's got to mean from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I believe that that's the sense in which it should be used here uh, as it is indicated in the margin. Except a man be born 
from above. Uh, in the, um, well, we'll leave that for a moment. And so I believe it should read, born from above. Now the word born in the Greek is the word genea. And it means uh, to beget or to give birth. When it's speaking in relation to a father, it means beget. When it's speaking in relation to a, a, a woman or a mother, it means give birth. The word geneo appears something like 41 times in Matthew chapter 1. We're going through the genealogy of the Lord, we read that so and so begat so and so and so on. And about 41 times through that chapter this word geneo appears. But in verse 16 of that chapter we read, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. We find that word geneo used twice in that verse 16. It's translated begat in relation to Jacob begetting Joseph and it's translated was born in relation to Mary giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it shows the way in which that word is used. In verse um, 20 we find it again. But while he thought on these things, behold the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And there's the word again, conceived, the word geneo. And so we find that this word geneo is used in that way. When it's speaking of the father, it means beget. When it's speaking in relation to a woman or a mother, it means to give birth. It appears eight times in John chapter 3. Once in verse 3, twice in verse 4, once in verse 5, twice in verse 6, once in verse 7 and once in verse 8. Eight times in all. Very interesting that in relation to this discourse upon rebirth we find this word should be used eight times which a number which speaks of circumcision and the cutting off of flesh. So I believe that in verse 3 where the Lord says verily, verily I say unto thee except a man be born from above I believe the meaning there is that of begettal. I believe it means beget because as John points out the origin of that begettal is from above. That is from the Father in the heavens. And in going back to that uh, section in James chapter 1 <coughs> verses 17 and 18 we read how every good gift comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning and then in verse 18 we, we read of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures <coughs> So you see, it's the Father in the heavens that begets. And it's that begettal that is the very start of life. It's something over which we have no control. Who had any control over their begettal? 
our origin went right back to, to our begetting. But which of us had any control or any say in the matter at all? You see, and so it is in spiritual matters. James says, of his, of his own will begat he us by the word of truth. You see, and so the very begettle in, in, in the context of, of John chapter 3 here is an act of grace. It's an act of God's grace in that he introduces a person to the word of truth because we find that it is the word of truth that is the seed in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 we're told that the seed is the word of the kingdom in uh, 1st of Peter 1 and verse 23 the apostle there tells us that we must be gotten again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible even by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever and so the word of God is, is, is God's seed with which he begets his children and by his grace he gives people the opportunity to receive and accept his word. But you see, just in the natural sphere of things, a father cannot produce children without the cooperation of the mother. And so Yahweh cannot produce children out of Adam's race. Oh, he can only produce children out of Adam's race where his word is willingly received and accepted into a person's mind. You see, a person that, that refuses to receive that word can never be begotten. That begettle can only take place when the word goes forth but it is willingly received. Now, on this aspect of the new birth, Brother Thomas has some very beautiful words in Elpis Israel. And in Elpis Israel, on page 135, and I would recommend that you, you all avail yourself of the opportunity to read these words at your own leisure in relation to these things. But I'd just like to read uh, a couple of paragraphs. We'll read one paragraph first. It's in the middle of page 135. There, Brother Thomas says, the new birth, like the old one of the flesh, is not an abstract principle, but a process. It begins with the begettle and ends with the having been born. A son of God is a character which is developed out of the incorruptible seed of God sown into the fleshly table of the heart. When this seed or word of the kingdom is received, it begins to work in a man until he becomes a believer of the truth. When, thing, when things have come to this pass, he is a changed man. He has acquired a new mode of thinking, for he thinks in harmony with the thoughts of God, as revealed in his law and testimony. He sees himself and the world around him in a new light. He is convinced of sin and experiences an aversion to the things in which he formerly delighted. His views, disposition, temper and affections are transformed. He is humble, childlike 
teachable and obediently disposed and his simple anxiety is to know what God would have him to do. Having ascertained this, he does it and in doing it is born out of the water having been begotten by the Father by the word of truth and born of water. The first stage of the process is completed. He is constitutionally in Christ. Now there Brother Thomas very beautifully shows us what begettal by the word really means. It means the word of God being received into the mind received into the mind in such a way that it's going to change a man's whole way of thinking and his whole approach to life. It's going to change his whole outlook on himself and change the whole disposition that that, that the man manifests. That's what being begotten by the word really is. You see, that was a principle that Nicodemus, the educated Jew of Jerusalem, had not really understood. He had not grasped that flesh is the enemy of God, whether it be Jewish flesh, whether it be Gentile flesh, whether it be Catholic flesh, or whether it be Christadelphian flesh. It makes no difference. The flesh is the enemy of God. Nicodemus couldn't understand that. He couldn't understand that Jewish flesh was at enmity with God. You see, regardless of what or who a person is, the thoughts, disposition and direction of life, if the thoughts, disposition and direction of life have their origin in flesh, then that person is out of harmony with God and is hence alienated from God's kingdom. God's family is made up of those who have willingly received the word and in whom the word has developed and changed their lives. That's what constitutes a person, a member of God's family. And without that rebirth, a person must remain at enmity with God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ emphasises this to Nicodemus. He says it's not a matter of being born a son of Abraham. It's a matter of being a son of Abraham by faith, by disposition and by works. And unless the word of truth enters into a person's mind and so transforms them and brings them into harmony with God in their thinking then it matters not whether a person is a Jew or a a Gentile or what they are. They're alienated from the promises of God. And so the Lord says, except a man be born of faith, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word see there, it's a, a, a word which we've come up against before, a word idon, and Bullinger says it signifies the actual perception of the object. You see, Nicodemus, holding traditionally Jewish ideas, had really been reasoning along fleshly lines concerning the kingdom of God, seeing it as revolt, uh, dependent upon his birth into the chosen nation. 
seeing the Messiah as a man who was going to come and elevate that nation of Israel as it existed then. You see, he was really reasoning on fleshly lines. Therefore, he was a man that could not perceive fully that Jesus was a king of Israel. He couldn't really understand the kingdom of God because he hadn't really got a right concept of the thing in its very foundation principles. And so we find Nicodemus answers the Lord in verse 4. He says unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus can't get beyond the concept of natural birth into the chosen people. He, he, he can't get away from that fact that he was that being born into the chosen family, the chosen nation, was of vital importance. And so he questions the Lord still further. Possibly he's trying to draw his mind out further by putting that question to him. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, obviously the answer to that question is no, he can't. He can't have a a second natural birth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5 answers him. Again he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And in verses 5 and 6 here, Christ spells the matter out very clearly. In verse 5, again, he uses the phrase, verily, verily, to emphasise upon Nicodemus the importance of what he is about to say. He says, except... There's no other way. There's only one way into the kingdom of God. He says, except a man, again, any man, Jew or Gentile alike, be born of water and of spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's dealt in verse 3 with the, with the aspect of begettal. Now I believe he deals here in verse 5 with the aspect of birth. And there has to be a birth both of of water and of spirit. In other words, as Brother Thomas says there, how, how this begettal sets in motion a process which finishes in the final birth of a complete son of God. So we're shown here now that that birth takes place in two stages. I believe the Lord is showing now that there has to be a two stages in that birth. One, there has to be a moral development and two, there must be a physical birth. So there must be a birth morally and a birth physically before a person can enter the kingdom of God. The Jew demanded baptism of a a Gentile. A Gentile who wanted to become a proselyte and and become part of the nation of Israel was expected to be baptised. And here the Lord is telling Nicodemus but you see he's no different to a Gentile. The very message that John the Baptist had tried to impress upon that nation. That they needed to to go out and make a completely new start. 
And so here the Lord, when the Lord speaks of birth of the water, I believe things would start to hit home to the mind of Nicodemus. His mind would, he would, his mind would go to the, the example of a Gentile coming in to the chosen people of God who would have to be baptised in water. But you see, the Pharisees could not accept that Jews had to be baptised in Luke chapter 7 and verse 20. We read of the Pharisees um, I think I, I must have oh, verse 30, sorry not verse 20 but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves not being baptised of him so you see the Pharisees are, 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 are listed there as a class that refused to be baptised by John because they couldn't accept that they had to be treated like Gentiles. But now the Lord Jesus Christ is pressing the same lesson upon Nicodemus. But you see, we look at these words, comparing them with verse 3, and the Lord is showing the development that must take place. You see, the word must produce in us obedience. And we must acknowledge the righteousness of God before there can be any harmony or oneness. And so the Lord says be born of the water which I believe takes place when a person is baptised. When a person is baptised they're born of the water because that seed which has been sown in the mind by the Father from above has been received by the person that it is created in that person a disposition toward obedience, as Brother Thomas pointed out. It's shown that person that the first act of obedience to which they submit is baptism in water, that they might acknowledge the righteousness of God in condemning sinful flesh to death, and that they must be identified with a crucified Saviour. Now that brings about a moral change. Well, the actual dipping in water doesn't bring about any moral change. But the submission to baptism shows that a moral change has taken place and the person wishes to render obedience unto God. And so the person has been changed morally and morally they're born as a new creature, as a new person with a new outlook and attitude on life. Now just reading the next paragraph out of Elpis Israel, page 135, Brother Thomas says, when a child is born, the next thing is to train him up in the way he should go, that when he is old he may not depart from it. This is also the arrangement of God in relation to those who are born out of water into his family on earth. He he disciplines and tries them, that he may exalt them in due time. Having believed the gospel and been baptised, Such a person is required to walk worthy of the vocation or calling wherewith he has been called, that by so doing he may be accounted worthy of being born of spirit, that he may become spirit or a spiritual body and so enter the kingdom of God, crowned with glory, honour, incorruptibility and life. Uh, 
and so on, he goes on showing how when a person comes out of the grave, our clothed with spirit nature in that way, the birth of the spirit has taken place and the complete and full development of, uh, of a son of God has been accomplished. The word, through the word, he was begotten. That word has grown and developed. He's been born a new creature morally with a new, new standards in life, new disposition, new outlook on life and so on and so forth. Through a period of probation he continues to be renewed and rebuilt and strengthened by the word of truth so that a new character is developed in him. And then finally the judgment seat of Christ. Yahweh will glorify by the bestowal of spirit nature. He will glorify that which his spirit word has developed in him. And, th- and this was the, these are the principles there that the Lord is teaching Nicodemus and us concerning gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. He's stressing upon Nicodemus that a person must be completely morally and physically changed before he can enter into the kingdom of God. The Jews were expecting the kingdom of God to be established there and then and they expected to find themselves in it. But without those changes, there would be, could be no hope of them entering into the kingdom of God. God will not glorify flesh, but he will clothe with glory and immortality that which is in harmony with himself. God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons, but he will immortalise in people that which his word has produced. And so in verse 6, the Lord says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Like begets like. Flesh, whether it's Jewish flesh, whether it's Gentile flesh, whether it's Catholic flesh or Christadelphian flesh. Flesh produces flesh, but spirit produces spirit. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit or divine nature. And when that full and complete birth is accomplished, then that person will be a bearer of divine nature. But flesh, that which is produced of the flesh in us, is flesh and will be destroyed. But that which the spirit word produces in us will be clothed with spirit nature in the age to come. That is being born of the spirit. Perhaps we could just conclude our thoughts tonight by reading the quotation from Faith in the Last Days by Brother Thomas which really sums up the teaching of these verses. On page 203 of Faith in the Last Days, Brother Thomas writes, the first step, that is, to, to, be, to inheriting the kingdom of God, the first step is the declaration of the intention or confession with the mouth as the result of believing the things of the kingdom and name with the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the first point he says is belief. Next comes obedience to the law of faith which commands the confessor to be baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is now in mind, body and estate the purchased possession of the King of Israel. He is in mind and heart begotten from above and in body washed with pure water. Thus he is intellectually and morally begotten of the spirit truth and corporeally washed with water made pure by the special use to which it is appropriated. In other words, Brother Thomas is saying there that the water really does nothing only because of of what the significance that Yahweh has placed upon it. Now he says in connection with the subjects faith in the things of the kingdom and the name thus being begotten of the word and born of water he is scripturally responsive to the exhortation of the apostle who says to all such let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience by the blood of sprinkling in the obedience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of the hope unwavering and now what waits he for for the son of God from heaven to change the body of his humiliation into a light form with the body of his, of his exaltation and glory through that spirit energy by which he is able and at that time prepared to subdue all things to himself this accomplished and he is corporeally begotten of the spirit and an actual inheritor of the then established glorious and all conquering kingdom of God and so we see how the Lord Jesus Christ here was showing Nicodemus the basic fundamental principles upon which a man can gain entrance into the kingdom of God it matters not the subject of our natural birth doesn't matter whether we're a Jew, whether we're a Gentile, whether we're, we're an Asian, a Russian or whatever we are. It matters not. If a person is prepared to receive the seed of God, willingly receive it, submit to it, obey it and allow it to develop in him a changed life, a new character, a transformed person, then that change which the Spirit has wrought in that person's life will be immortalised and glorified in the kingdom of God. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that we might heed those lessons, that we together with Nicodemus, a man who we believe was changed by the word, that we together with him might be with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, clothed with spirit nature.